Hi, this is Dan Murdoch, and you're listening to the Sound Architect podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Sound Architect podcast. I'm Sam Hughes, and I'm joined by Playtonic Games audio director Dan Murdoch. Thanks for joining us today, Dan. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, no worries. It's an absolute pleasure. So before we talk about your work on ukulele, I just wanted to ask you, how did your career in game audio begin? Ooh, um, well, I can actually pinpoint the, the exact the exact moment. It was, I think it was EGX 2012, where I turned up at EGX with a bunch of business cards and wanting to get in game, game audio and went and found... Her name at the time was Emma Cole, but her name is Emma Smith, who was on the um, getting into the industry kind of panels and et cetera. You go and talk to people about careers, et cetera. Oh, cool. She is, she's the person who does all the stuff at Creative Assembly, actually. And they're a great company for really helping people get into the industry and making kind of this very hard industry to get into more transparent. Yeah. She gave me some amazing advice on how to kind of get into to games at the lowest, lowest level and do indie stuff. And from basically that advice onwards, um, through 2013, 2014, um, I then basically worked on a whole bunch of indie games as part of the London Indies scene, um, working in the pub at first and doing doing indie games when I could, and then, you know, working for 50 quid and then 100 quid and then a few hundred quid and then a grand a, grand a pop to do apps oh, wow. and such things. Nice. And then eventually a mate of mine who I knew from uni was, I'm going to go all in on this indie title um and set up a company g1 in and i had had a few indie games under my belt by that point and was like okay yeah sure why not came on board as co-producer um and co-owner of the company for that that was called oh, wow. Stand, that was called stand points and we eventually got that on xbox one um and it's one of those kind of projects that i always look back at and go oh this could have been something amazing but we had no money at all but yeah. <laughs> we still managed to about two three-man team create something we got on xbox one which was a a big thing for me and uh, oh, yeah. the music sound for that and that was my first 3d game that i had worked on and it was quite technical as well um and then through doing that and having that in my portfolio i managed to get the junior position at rocksteady for batman arkham knight wow so you know pretty good career path <laughs> yeah that's the yeah the true true indie fashion and then straight into the top of the triple a and then back to this somewhere in between team now yeah, because, I mean, it's it's kind of hard to pinpoint what Platonic are, I suppose, isn't it? It's not really indie, but it's it's, it's not like a huge... It's 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 kind of very indie, because I went here, it's for the kind of game we're making, wasn't a huge budget on ukulele by any stretch of the imagination. Like, kind of two million from Kickstarter yeah. only goes so far. So the tools I've got to use and the general feel of the company and the culture of the company is very, very indie. It's kind of you know, live by the, what's it called, the seat of your pants or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really, so it's 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 finding to try and make the best of the very limited stuff we've got here. But at the same time, everyone expects a AAA product because of the heritage of the studio, um, right, which yeah. is this kind of kind of really weird, interesting, exciting, terrifying uh, situation we're in where we've got to produce these these games that are kind of kind of double A, as it as it were, but on a mo- you know, not a tiny budget, but 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 modest budget. So yeah. I don't know. I suppose we're suppose we're an old school mid tier in a way. Those don't exist very much anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to define now. Things just tend to be AAA or indie, and you know, you kind of wonder what is an A or a double A. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So no, it's um, yeah. I suppose I suppose it really is kind of middle middle of the road. I mean, 
it's certainly not a triple A, I can tell you, going from one to the other, when you kind of have this lovely microphone covered and I really wouldn't mind this plug and sure here it is or you know here's, here's and here it's the microphone and whatever EQ came with Cubase elements so <laughs> yeah it's uh yeah you can try and try and wrestle for whatever couple hundred quid you need to buy what you need to buy but uh yeah it's it, it it's very very different to the AAA the AAA I've worked on before but then again actually when I did all the indie stuff it feels very much like that but I've got all the stuff I wanted when I was doing indie stuff, you know, that cost a few hundred quid. Yeah. So it's a, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of really weird being really bang in the middle of those two, two experiences. Yeah, definitely. Now I'm just curious, just going back to the fact that you went to EGX 2012 with a few business cards, what, cause we, we obviously go around and a lot of people give that advice to do that, go to expos, you know, and kind of get yourself out there at networking events and things like that. What inspired you to go to EGX with a few business cards and how did that kind of start for you? Um, I think it was, I was at uni and I studied, I studied a straightforward classical music or, or orchestral kind of style composition degree. And at some point during that course, one of our lecturers mentioned about where as a composer in the modern day, you can get work because obviously as a classical composer, it's, it's just as hard as, as any kind of. Thing. Oh yeah. So one of the things that came up were was games and at which point i was i had loved games since i was a very young kid and i've always played all the time and I was kind of mad about it always have been and and i had written off being able to work in games all right because my mind is you know a 17 18 19 year old i thought oh i can't do that i can't i'm not really good with computers i'm not you know i can i know my way around the computer but not, not but not like a program does and I'll never be the technical kind of person who who really understands like coding and, and I'm not an artist. Yeah. So I can't draw concept art and I can't draw characters. I have no idea how animation works. And the idea that there was much of a scope for music and sound did never had really occurred to me to that point for some strange reason. But then I was like 18, 19, and that got mentioned in the uh, in in a in uni, and and then it just became an obsession. And then everything about my degree from that point onwards was, hey, there's this uh, thing I've got to do. I've got to write a piece of music for this. Oh, they want me to score a film. Actually, I'm going to ask if I can score a game instead. And, oh, this would be really good. There's a, how do you write an essay on uh, diegetic sound? And, and then I was like, no, no, I'm going to do a spe special thing about how diegetic is, is different in, in a game. And basically throughout my whole degree was, was doing that and, and really focusing at that age. And during all the time I was learning all the tools and skills I needed to do this job, really focusing on how is this going to work for games. When I came out of uni, I was already, already very in that mindset of, right, I need to find my way in. Yeah. And just happened by chance, a family friend's son happened to be one of the level designers on, I think it was Battlefield 3. Oh, cool. Time. And I was like, oh my God, how did you do that? And he says, oh, you know, I just go to things. And I asked him where to go because I had been kind of bumming around trying having no idea where to look for a while and he said i'll oh, go to egx you'll find indies you'll find people there and i did i found a bunch of indies who invited me to the london indie pub night and i found the um career stand and as i said uh lady emma cole who i would love to meet again who i'm forever indebted for basically giving me a roadmap of what i needed to do the next few years to be able to get to games yeah because she thinks she's now emma smith um, she's still a creative assembly. Oh, okay, cool. 
Now, I'm just curious as well. So you did your course in classical music composition. Yep. What kind of made you, I mean, obviously you wrote music still as well, I assume, but what made you take the more sound design audio route? Because I got obsessed with electroacoustic music while I was at university. So that's, for those who aren't very familiar with that, uh, that's the idea of um, sound without a definable source. So the idea of writing music that has no definable source, there's no instrument or there's no obvious thing that's making the sound apart from the loudspeaker it's coming out of. And that's powered by the music concrete uh, concrete movement out of the 1970s in Paris, I think. Um, And so basically it was about, from a purely classical music uh, um, angle, writing what are effectively sound sculptures that are meant to be listened to um, just as pieces of music. Okay, so like as a whole, as a part of some of its parts. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't, there's no, uh, to use the Wagner term, there's no, it's not a part of anything. There's no visual or there can be, but there's no game or, or film or anything else that the sound design is connected to. It's just sitting as itself as they listen to these interesting composition of sounds I have made. Yeah. Uh, that's all a really, relatively quite big movement within the modern classical music world. And I got obsessed with that and found that really interesting. And through just doing that, you learn all the tools and techniques, you know, all the kind of the DAW and the sound recording, sound manipulation, all those things that we use every day as part of as part of that aspect. And it was a very simple step to, to take those skills and that uh, style of composition and transfer that into sound effects. In fact, it was it's a lot easier. In fact, there are more connections with the sound effects and the sound design aspect of of this this kind of job than there are, are with the traditional music writing i oh, i yeah. found awesome so i really want to talk to you about ukulele <laughs> yeah so let's let's yeah well let's well, let's just talk about um how you first got involved let's go right from the start how did you first get involved in ukulele okay so i actually backed it first oh That's wow <laughs> my very first, uh, yeah there's a very small group of us who uh, are in the credits twice mm. uh, of which i am one so yeah, big rare fan, big big '90s N64 gamer. Uh, backed it, uh, and then had a little thing in the back of my mind, being like, "Wouldn't it be awesome to uh, to get involved in that?" And that was what I was uh, still at Rocksteady. And um, one of my coworkers at Rocksteady was ex-rare. In fact, I think two of them were, but one of them actually knew people on the team. Um, and effectively, I got recommended. Um, I I've, I've made it very clear that I was interested. Uh, t- to her, her name Jess Jess Saunders. She's a very very good sound designer, and um, she she put she put my name uh, forward when they were looking for someone, and that's that's how I got the job. Wow! So was there any sort of uh, or not audition process, but you know sometimes you have to do a sound test or or that sort of thing. Was there anything like that with Platonic? Not really. No, it was uh, much more about my attitude, my vision, what I cared about, how I how I. I my passion for the 90s for games um it it was like i said step away from the triple a it's much more indie than that am i a fun person to work with i obviously had to give my portfolio and they could see what i've done in the past and see that i was obviously skilled and good enough uh the other big thing is that they wanted someone that they even knew or they knew they could trust because at that point there were only about 12 people on the team yeah um, and everyone was ex-rare or someone they knew personally and so the link of someone that they knew and had worked with in the past said, this person is very passionate and very keen for this role and recommended me was, I think, enough. Awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, it was it was more it was more that kind of indie who, you know, 
uh, right place, right time. Yeah, definitely. And it was it was quite a big jump, surely, going from junior sound designer at Rocksteady straight to audio director. Yes, I think it probably is on paper, and it was a hell of a lot to learn in some ways. I mean, I never done things like all the virtualization um, aspect and all the technical side of trying to make sure we haven't got a voice count through the roof and all, all that kind of aspect. But remember, I was doing so much indie stuff beforehand, where I was the sole person in charge of all the sound and music on much smaller projects. But it's the same principle. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of nice to suddenly go from King of the Castle on this little indie game that lasted four hours long. We got we managed to get on Xbox One to bottom of the pile, you know, nine people on the audio team thrown at the deep end on uh, on Batman, uh, and then suddenly be King of the Castle again. But this time with the experience of having worked uh, fourteen months on Arkham Knight and learned all the kind of like skills you're supposed to pick up when you're working in AAA and the correct way to go about making a high quality game, yeah, um, high quality sound. And then take all that information, all that experience that I learned there, and then just go back to getting getting it done, getting the job done, really kind of getting in, getting dirty with have, touching every aspect. And so it was a big jump in some ways, but I kind of felt I was ready for it, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, no, I know what you're saying, and uh, I'm really curious. So once you got the job, and you're like, right, okay, you're on this, you're on ukulele. What were you told? What was the first thing you were told about in terms of a brief about what you had to do? Uh, that they were keeping the dialogue system exactly the same as it was in Banjo Kazooie. Right. That was that was the the kind of only direction. Uh, I basically got told, do the sound. Um, we don't know what we're doing with the sound. We've hired you to solve that problem. Uh, so that was all on me, as it were. Yeah. But they obviously had to got the composers tied down. But yeah, they they the whole reason they needed someone who had worked on AAA and, and knew their stuff was because they they didn't have anything prepared or any idea of direction or anything like that for sound so it was really just go away and saw all the sound on the game yeah the one thing that pretty much informed all of it that i did have direction on was they were very adamant that they were keeping the dialogue system exactly the same as it would have been in banjo kazooie right and that was pretty much knowing that and how much of those those voices and how much character is in those voices and that being a, a non-negotiable aspect of what was going to be in our game that very much informed the kind of character and style uh, that I went with for the whole game. It was kind of, well, if we're going to do that with the voices, and that's so very, very 90s and so very much of its time and style that if I try and do any other than really try and investigate what made that 90s sound, that 90s sound and character platformers and rare and the kind of cartoony style, um, it's just going to bash up against that, those those voices and it's going to sound wrong. So I kind of used that um, vocal style we've got in the game as the kind of instructive um, the, the direction for the whole the whole sound palette, as it were. Yeah, definitely. And I'm really curious if they did they give you a reason as to why, um, for example, they didn't want to update it to be similar but have voice acting, or why they wanted to keep it um, that original. I'm assuming it's just to kind of keep that '90s feel. I think it's I think it's also because ukulele uh, ukulele is a way not only a game that feels like it was made you know 15 years ago and it's been dug straight out of like the late 90s and dropped here I think it's also partly because it's also the game that should have been made 15 years ago right there's a lot on this game that I think is it's the un finished story it's the it's the thing that 
maybe should have happened that never got to happen and that's a massive crime so it's a lot about writing some wrongs of the past this was effectively you know banjo kazooie 3 was a game that everyone was expected to come out but banjo nuts and bolts is what came out right and okay this was the thing a lot about this project was about trying to rectify that situation and if you're going to go all in this is the title to have done it on um in in short basically i think that to be a real true successor to banjo kazooie 3 and at the time that was absolutely the goal they just desperately wanted to give people the sequel that they never got that they should have got um and to do that authentically they needed to give them a real banjo kazooie not one that happened 20 years later yeah no i understand what you're saying and of course it's hard to talk about ukulele without discussing banjo kazooie uh, mm. Did you go to the old banjo games? I mean, obviously you're a fan yourself, and I I played the uh, the banjo kazooie games on N64. Did you kind of go back to those and draw influences from those purposefully? Religiously. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, that was it was it was so clear that that was that was what we're doing to the point where we actually had a font made for us to copy the the, the same font in the dialogue system and i once that's what that got made clear i was like okay now we are gonna have to be faithful here yeah um that was very much what the community were telling us they wanted at the time um as well as personal desires i think on the team um that i went and sat and analyzed and wrote kind of documentation on exactly how they did sound in uh banjo kazooie so especially things like the jingles every time you complete a challenge that you've got reward jingles yeah. when you fail a challenge the fail jingle is um more informative than it is emotional you know and writing about the voices of course but also collectibles and how those change and all the player moves and all the uh ways that thing on un- things unlock uh um and then basically took it all and analyzed the entire thing at one go and was like okay what is the stuff that we cannot do what is the stuff that is so dated and so horrible that we are not revisiting um and that was the things that need things that really need updates were things like environment sound and um in in world moving parts and these kind of things that's on a horribly compressed n64 cartridge and you go back and listen to that now it sounds <laughs> god awful every time you walk past a waterfall in banjo kazooie it's just one of the most nasty sounds you can possibly imagine so <laughs> that whole kind of in world stuff was updated and that is a modern sound design approach there's you walk around um the kind of opening level of uh shipwreck creek and very subtle very kind of like um well considered kind of point sources and ambiences and moving things and and platforms that move back and forth etc so that's all really really kind of like up to date and modern that was my it's hd visuals here's proper hd sound as it were yeah and then that's all relatively low down in the mix. And on top of that is placed all that ridiculously over the top 90s in your face stuff. Uh, so collectibles, anything subjective, so your challenge uh, effects, fanfares, um, boings and springs and bounces and, and slide whistles and all that kind of you play <laughs> stuff. As yeah, well. classic. Uh, and player sound as well, uh, again, straight from the banjo, uh, banjo games or nearly all the player sound is vocal. In fact, all the enemy sound is pretty much vocal again. That was very much um, inspired by exactly what they were doing on Banjo-Kazooie. 
Uh, in fact, I find that that vocal sound, the, the, how much musical instruments and how much instrumentation there is in the sound design and how much vocals there are in the sound design, yeah. they're the two real key aspects that I took straight from Banjo-Kazooie and really worked with. Um, I think the big question I always asked myself was, okay, I need a sound for this. Could it be a musical instrument instead? If it can, great. That's what it's going to be. So why use a big kind of bang thud or something, hitting something when I can use a timpani? Gliss. Yes. Uh, yeah, that's that's the uh, that was the kind of the things I took from those games. Yeah, and you know, as a banjo fan myself, it's fantastically done because you you pick up ukulele and it just feels like you're playing banjo kazooie. You know, in a, in a lot of aspects, but with that semi retro brought up to date feel. Hmm. It's 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 really interesting. Uh, obviously, kind of now the game's out and everything to kind of like sit there and analyze. And you, I think, during the time. It was so obvious to do that and so obvious to try and really, really hammer home that it's in the 90s. It's it's a Banjo-Kazooie throwback that it's almost surprising to hear people go, oh, wow, it really is a 90s kind of style game. It, it, it Totally, um, because you get so invested in it you and you spend all your time, especially me, going back and playing Spyro the Dragon and Mario 64 and Banjo-Kazooie and Crash Bandicoot. Yeah. yeah, all the classics that... I've been researching those games for so long that it almost became the new normal. So yeah. when they came out, people were like, wow, it really is 90s sound. I was like, oh yeah, I suppose it is going to play a modern game. Modern games don't sound <laughs> like this, do they? <laughs> um, very much invested in, and, and surrounding myself with that, with that soundscape and all the things I was playing and researching that it kind of became the obvious thing for me to do. Yeah. Um, so it'll be interesting to, to, to move on and then think about Okay, now we've done that and we've totally committed on this project, which I'm glad we did because I think it needed to be done. Uh, where we go from here, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, you're going to have to let go of all the, you know, the whistles and the... <laughs> oh, I, don't know let, I don't think we can let go of the whistles. Oh, no. That's a, <laughs> a, bit, a bit too much, but we'll see, we'll see. We'll see where we go. I mean, um, obviously, oh, we need to reflect and sound what, we, what the rest of the team are doing, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it'd be interesting to see um, how the sound evolves with how the games that we make evolve yeah um as i don't think we can just make banjo kazooie forever uh it's been done it's great but we will you know i think i'm sure we'll find ways to refresh it in certain ways but keeping the core intact yeah definitely and you know obviously you used all this old reference material from the 90s um to inform ukulele but did you play any modern platformers to see the other end of the spectrum at all um yes a little bit i mean the problem is there aren't many modern platforms. i was gonna ask like <laughs> apart from inside and you know things along that line well the thing with inside is it's it's such a wonderful sounding game and it's such a wonderful sounding game because um he had such an amazingly long time to, to do it and, and yeah. such amazing support for his uh for his sound just i i i, I did a um i had a uh develop audio track one year he he spoke at and the amazing things that he he's he's gotten support in terms of the technical side and all of the triggering the visual effects and the attacks and the hits uh all off the sound design is this amazing um amazing uh, importance of sound sorry amazing importance that they've given the sound in that game yeah uh, in, in 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 the development team which is it just shows you what you can do when you when you think sound is that important uh, but yeah, as, as you're saying, like that's the, the limbos and 
to a degree, even the braids and meat boys and physics, et cetera, aren't really what we were kind of going for. I think a lot of the platformers are either the kind of dark postmodern kind of style, more, let's say, tasteful kind of uh, aesthetics, yeah. while the other stuff that's big in terms of platforming of recent years have really been 80s, uh, sorry, um, SNES and NES throwbacks. Yeah. Um, think of the Meat Boys and your Braids and your and your, as I said, Fez, but all, but even also the uh, Tropical Freeze and um, Rayman Origins and Legends and even Mario, like they've had such a focus on um, well, two D games for for a start, but also I think again with just the ages of people in the industry, people have been reminiscing the the late eighties and early nineties for a very long time in video games now um yeah so though i did look at some of the more up-to-date uh platformers i mean i mean ratchet and clank that came out uh last year was amazing and and uh i always liked insomniac's games and all the weapons always sound really fun yeah uh and i obviously you know that I've, I've been playing on charges i've been playing tomb raider the kind of the the, the actual successes as they were uh, in a way to the kind of 3d platformer just become kind of adventure games yeah like an action platformer i suppose yeah um but i mean i I obviously can listen to them in a way but a lot of that is has been a case of listening to them and going they're doing all this i'm not going to do that yeah because i know that it is helpful to do that in a way like you can you walk forward as as nathan drake or as batman you hear every little rub rub of rubber and every little bit of gear just kind of clinking and, and it sounds it sounds really cool but it's levels of detail that we cannot afford to go into here with a you know one-man audio team yeah but now thankfully very expanded but um you know but there's one person here and your style is is this warner brothers cartoon um throwback in a way which is what banjo was it's very it's good to kind of look at these games that kind of have evolved from the 3D platformer and realize what has made them the way that they are and what to avoid and what still is very much important and interesting and maybe it may be relevant but comparing that to the actual 90s platformers and working out oh okay what can we what can we bring what can we leave alone what makes a modern game modern that is actually not appropriate for what we're trying to do yeah of course um, so I'm, I'm actually curious now to talk about the tech side of ukulele. So okay. what kind of software and middleware were you using to implement all this? So it's Wise, Wise is the audio engine. Um, in in terms of uh, implementation, the, then Unity and Wise working together. There's very, very little bespoke stuff that we've created for the game, actually. Um, a lot of the implementation was based around me figuring out kind of ways around and jury rigs and kind of uh smashing things together which aren't in their intended use um to to be able to create the kind of 3d semi-open world game in the unity engine um and flesh that out with the amount of sounds you would expect in such a game there's no there wasn't anyway much in terms of audio code support if really any um in in truth I could get them to put events in scripts. In fact, I just put my own events in scripts half the time anyway. Yeah. Uh, and aside from the occasional RTPC, um, very, very little, actually. All of the technical side of it was handled by me in WISE um, in terms of voice counts and um, priorities and streaming and um, 
basically the way I kind of got around the vast majority of this is just creating a, uh, all the sounds that are in world on sphere colliders that turn on as the player enters and turns off as the player exits. Um, and then pretty much just scaling those with attenuation so that they're ever so slightly larger than the max attenuation or whatever sound happened to be put on them. Uh, and apart from that, uh, that being the main way we got around using sounds in world, uh, we're just making sure we've implemented all the sounds on animation because all the sound on animation meant that if things aren't in direct view, the animator will be turned off, therefore there will be no sound. And then in terms of, I'm thinking, um, just trying to avoid putting sounds in state machines wherever possible because that was the way that it became most expensive. Sorry, um, state machines, I mean visual scripting tools. Right, okay. Um, there isn't an awful lot I've got to be, to be honest in terms of in terms of the kind of technical side of more than that. It wasn't like we had the time or the budget or even the numbers of staff to be able to do much in the way of particularly interesting things. As much as I have a lovely idea for a dynamic um, attenuation uh, exaggerator for positional camera and swing spinning the camera around the player, which is something I would keep wanting to get implemented one day. <laughs> but uh, um, such wonderful endeavors that are fun to do are, were unfortunately too much for a project like Ukulele, where it was Kickstarter funded and there were 15 of us and we had a 30 hour game to make in a year and a half. Yeah, and I was, I was just going to ask before I ask about that. What did you have any kind of go-to plugins, and what door were you using? You know, is there anything that gave you that signature sound that you stuck with throughout? Um, so we tried to record wherever possible. When we were recording, we were using It was actually Cubase Elements. Um, oh wow! It was yeah. Again, budget being what it was, uh, there was one microphone. I think it was named. Hang on uh nt 2a the road mic large diaphragm compressor yeah sorry condenser um the door was cubase and wavelab elements because that's what we could afford um and sound in terms of sound libraries do we do have a bit of the boom stuff the um i think it's uh debris and the metal the metal work one um and apart from that we were using uh the cartoon express library um for some of those cartoony sounds what that's really good for actually is because is um all of the instruments that they've recorded uh are, are really really good they've got exhaust exhausting libraries of um pretty much every every can you imagine slide trombones and trumpets and violins and banjos oh, and drums and timpanis and like just loads and loads of gestures that they've recorded and that's what i used an awful lot of um in general i try to not use any of the design sounds in any of that library i try and stick mostly to using um all these instruments gestures as um starting points yeah um I desperately in fact i'm pretty sure i made a rule that i think i may have failed only once and which a not a single sound went from the library into the game without being transformed because I'm a big believer in that and nothing breaks immersion more in a game where I go, oh, I recognize that sound. Yeah, exactly. When you go, oh, that's from this library. Yeah, um, so that would probably be a big starting point, though anything small, uh, we try to record We try to record here. So one microphone it is and a relatively cheap microphone it is as well, but it still does the job for lots of things. They're all over pouring, pouring water and, and foley with ice and lots of little experiments like that and rubber and 
also toys toys and toys are relatively cheap to get hold of so squeaky toys and blowy whistles and side whistle and mini turbo whistle thing like off ebay and um <laughs> shakers and rattlers and and you name it like those kind of handheld toy devices we can we can do we can do here we did do here um which is which is great because an awful lot of ukulele sound design is based on these toy instruments effectively and and squeaks and bounces and springs and things that are relatively cheap to get hold of and and, and have that kind of playful quality to them and that was that's probably where an awful lot of the signature sound came from those toys and those musical gestures that are used as starting points yeah it must have been fun to play with all of those little little instruments to get all the silly noises oh yeah yeah, yeah absolutely what would you um just kind of staying on that point then what would you say was one of the weirdest and most wonderful things you recorded for one of the sound effects in the levels yeah it's probably it's probably the ice um not that this is particularly weird and wonderful it's just a very memorable experience because i i was desperately trying to work out um how to get more sound into our glacier level because it's all very still it's very calm and there's only so many drips you can put in a cave yeah and um i i just i just knew that you can get some great sounds out of ice i remember the song putting um microphones into water that were you know hydrophone kind of stuff style and, and freezing them in water and then oh, recording wow. the sound of the ice melting and i thought well there's no way i can convince them to buy uh there's no way i can convince them to buy to let me buy a hydrophone um, though you can I think make them as well but uh I, I i thought well i can get i'm sure i can get those sounds but speed up the melting process uh so i realized that if i got large chunks of ice which i can make in the freezer and squeeze them for quite a bit of time keep rolling around in my hands then the heat from my hands will make them squeak and crack <laughs> um how are so your hands was, after this oh my god like you when you're doing that for 40 minutes you're just ro- squeezing 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 rolling them in your hands and you it made some amazing sounds i was really happy with it came, it came out these great squeaks and cracks and put loads of really wet um reverb of huge tails on it and you get these kind of like these, these squeaks and these cracks at the sound like they're going down the cave and that that yeah. was wonderful um, but my God, could your hands hurt after 40 minutes of holding and, and actively squeezing and rolling about an ice, a massive ice block in your oh, hand? Man, I bet. It must have um, been so numb. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But the rest of the day was pretty much gone because I couldn't type afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> it was horrible. But um, yeah, that's probably my most weirdest experience as it were. Oh, no, I've got a weirder one. Go for it. Yeah. I managed to find a. Um, well, we're, we're on a business park, which relatively nearby there's a chemical factory um so all the hub in the game is all um kind of factory level and loads of kind of wearing machines etc etc and there's loads of weird um machinery and vents and what smells like a big tar pit thing in nearby us yeah at the side of a of a well i think a drugs manufacturing plant oh okay Uh, i went round with a with a i think it was a zoom um h4n and and just started capture, capturing what i could uh from the outside and just realized there's an open door and i'm just walk, gonna walk in uh and um ask if i if they're finally coming around recording all these machines that are on the outside of the factory and anyway, i let myself myself into this this plant because it's completely like a completely open door on the side that's kind of half a jar and, and i just start walking around and 
finding other things that are actually making some interesting noise and grabbing grabbing this the recordings as I'm there, trying to actually find the reception. <laughs> get to, get to a point where I let myself in this door and then notice the shower next to me. And I was like, why is there a shower in here? And then notice the biohazard oh, on, on the wall. And just look around and I'm realizing what I've just walked into. And there's no one else there, but my God, did I not leg it out there as far as wow. <laughs> Um, so yeah, eventually I did actually manage to find a security guard who looked so scared and terrified that I was inside of this building. Oh, he, bet. He, told me, he told him uh, where you went. <laughs> well, he basically, he basically said, please just leave and don't tell anyone else you're here. Cause I think he was worried he was going to get, yeah, he's gonna get the sack, <laughs> someone yeah. had just walked in looking for reception. But, uh, but yeah, that was, that was an interesting afternoon. Wow. Probably left it open on his fag break or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just, it just, he asked me where I came in. Apparently, he, they didn't even know that door opened. Oh, um, wow. I, just, I literally just pushed on it and it came straight open. I was, wow, amazing. Wow. So just um, going back earlier as well to when you said you were a one-man audio team. Yeah. It's quite a big project for one person. How did you kind of manage it or how did you schedule yourself and divide your time? Well, I will, professors, say we did, we did have help from uh, Team 17. There's a guy at Team 17 called Ollie Wood who um they also uh made various bits of the game they made the mini games as part of ukulele so oh, cool. they took care of that aspect but also i borrowed ollie for an extra couple of months to help out with some of the sounds when we were in the absolute thick of it last summer um so he did uh some of uh, two or three of the enemies and a couple of challenges here and there and i think maybe a couple of other aspects i think he may have done one or two of the bosses as well so there was there was that uh, a couple of months on it but aside from that it was i don't know i hadn't really actually done, done scheduling sh- uh, scheduling before so that was a bit of a, a bit of a learning uh, curve it actually worked out quite nicely because in the pipeline and it not being a massive team um you could see what was coming yeah uh, really quite far off and it's such an open uh, set up here where I will just go and and well bomb the each department in turn and go and sit by them and just go hey what are you working on at the moment and just would regularly go do that and pretty much all the artists and character artists and background boys and the design team and so I can see everything that's coming um, and as there's only ten of them in total it's relatively easy to map out where everyone is and what everything where everyone is making and when um everything that i'm going to have to worry about is going to turn up on my plate and then i just scheduled very carefully okay i can do this then then this then and this then this then and uh and just just stayed on top of it every day checking you know every day or every day just going doing that round of every in a circle of everyone's desk to make sure there weren't going to be any nasty surprises. And then it was relatively easy to break down every individual task as its own component and then do them in the order that most made sense and give the ones that needed to go to Ollie to Ollie, trying to work out what his strengths and where it was most easy for him to work on because the things that were actually ready as opposed to kind of mostly ready. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, as, that's pretty much what it was to it. Lots of transparency when you've got a small team. Yeah, it must be nice to have such a an open environment where you can just go around and be like, okay, when's your stuff coming along? When's your stuff coming along? Right, okay, cool. I'm I'm sure they got sick of me, actually. <laughs> things, there, there wasn't actually a producer on ukulele. We didn't have any production. Oh, wow. Um, at all. 
So whereas going forward, we now have a producer, it'd be a lot bit easier to do that coordination. Um, it really became a situation where every team, every little mini team within the company, there was only, like I said, up to 20 of us, yeah. um, had to self-produce. Uh, which sounds like a nightmare in principle and certainly some of the larger scale things I think that we can look back on and go, hey, if we had a producer, we would have done that differently because we would have been able to realize how long it would take every team to do everything and get a much more detailed overall map. Yeah. Actually, the nitty gritty was relatively easy because by no I'm responsible for knowing where everyone is, I just made it my business to know where everyone is. And when you're in sound and you're obviously shut up, shut up away in a little room away from everyone else, it's very easy to get into a discipline of going and making sure that you know what is happening and who's doing what at what point. So, yeah, I mean, sure, I'm sure the, the art team got lots of weird looks at me while I sat behind them once every 48 hours and just, just like, so what you're doing? Uh, but um, it was certainly the way to go about it because then there were very, very little things that caught me out. Well, yeah, I mean, it's definitely worth getting involved. I mean, it's almost stereotypical, the uh, the audio guy coming along and, uh, well, I say audio person coming along and, and speaking up to be heard. Yeah, no, it's um, no, it's fun. It's, I've got to be honest, like, <laughs> it's, it'll be interesting to see where we go from here because there were very few meetings as well. It was, oh, it right. really was <laughs> well, basically none. Uh, we'd have one Wednesday chat, but everyone knew what the game was supposed to be, as it were, when it was such a close thing to Banjo. Yeah, um, of course. So immediately when they say, well, we're going to do challenges, well, I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to need challenge music and I'm going to need fanfare when you succeed and I'm going to need something when the cage opens and I'm going to need something when you collect the pagey. So having that blueprint proof of concept as a game that already exists that you can always reference kind of made the production side of it relatively easy because I knew from that game and us echoing it so well, faithfully, it was relatively easy to know what I was going to expect to come my way. Yeah, of course, yeah. No, I'm just curious then, what was the biggest challenge for you on ukulele? Um, I mean, personally, it probably was player sound. It was the thing I was most nervous about. Yeah? It's not something I'd ever really done before, and you were going to hear it all the time, really obnoxiously in your face, and I needed to make sure it didn't get too annoying, and it sounded accurate like there's so much platformer, especially 3D platformer, where there's all that problem with depth and camera and all that stuff being able to really think about very carefully how you implement sound to help the player control this ragdoll effect, not ragdoll, the, um, the mannequin on right, the screen. Yeah. Because every action you do is um, very indicative of what the response is. And people don't necessarily always credit sound with this, but I actually think when you've got a platformer, so much of how something feels is that audio response of knowing that when I hit A, he's going to jump. So that was probably my biggest challenge, getting that absolutely down and being very happy with it, um, having not done anything like that before. Um, I'd done a lot of environment sound before. I could definitely do music jingles and UI and lots of other things. I kind of knew where, how to come at it. That was certainly the thing for me that I knew was going to be such an important thing for the game. Um, and interestingly, actually, like there's some stuff I did with the player that is very unusual, I think. For example... Yuka's all his sounds are, are are really quite limited. He's got very few um, different emotes, right? And his emotes are sequenced, not randomized. Oh, okay. I realised from playing a lot of '90s games actually um, that there's something really satisfying 
and reassuring about knowing what sound you're going to hear when you press a button. Yeah. And even if it's only three emotes, hearing a when you know, hearing those in that order, that you don't necessarily realizing it, that just keeps you in contact and keeps you knowing exactly what the player the character is doing. Even if you've got your eyes shut, you can visualize all of the sound can maybe maybe a good parallel here is like street fighter where those sound effects are exactly the same in every time you do that move and it needs to be that way because that's how the best players can feel exactly you know to the frame of every one of those actions yeah it's an indicator isn't it that they're doing yeah. the right sequence or they're doing the right thing Exactly. So all of Yuka's sounds were very much built in the same way where it's a very small amount of sounds and they're always in a sequence and you always, uh, there's a little bit of pitch randomization on there just to, just to, not to feel that kind of earworm, but very little. Um, and to counteract that, because with the danger of doing that is it does become that earworm. I keep having to listen to him to make the same sound. Yeah. Laylee's sounds also almost entirely vocal apart from the occasional little flurry and squeak and, and a whoosh etc is the opposite she's got pools of about 20 emotes and they are randomized so almost every move that they do yuka's sound is you feeling absolutely in control and you knowing exactly what sounds you're going to make but they ladies always got subtle variations so technically when you jump or when you spin what you're hearing technically a different sound every time because when you've got 20 a, a pool of 20 emotes for jump or spin or whatever the action is um there's there's tons of variation there and you are jumping all the bloody time of course yeah uh, but at the same time you've got that reassurance of knowing exactly what noise yuka's gonna make every time it's trying to find a balance between those two things and that was that was how i did it and it seemed to work and I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's really really interesting yeah no it's kind of quite fascinating actually yeah, so there's it, that was that was a really really real one. That took a lot of research actually, trying to really find it, find out from the '90s what it was that makes characters feel like they feel and how responsive they feel and how that translates into sound in the '90s platformer. But at the same time, HD visuals is after all 2017. I'm going to have to do something to make it not monotonous. Yeah, and of that course. Was the solution yeah. I came up with. Um, anyway, that was. A little bit of a guide on how I do the players sound. It was like... No, that's really, really cool. It's a nice hybrid of, that you came up with, really. Because, I mean, you automatically made me think of uh, Mario 64 with that satisfying feeling when you get the triple jump. Yeah. And obviously yeah, the, exactly the noises that. that build up to it. I like the, you know, the what, 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 whoo. You know, that, that whole that whole thing being repeated. And, uh, yeah, it really is surprising how comforting it is that you know you're doing the right steps. Yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, that that was the triple jump thing I had in my mind specifically. I mean, that's such a famous. And it's the first thing everyone does. You start a new game of it. Oh yeah. <laughs> Very first thing you do is you triple jump your way up to the castle. So yeah, that was that was that was really interesting actually. So it was challenging, I suppose, because I'd done it before and it was so important because you hear those sounds one hundred percent of the time in that game, pretty much. But it was also really, really fun because I had to consider things to that level. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think, to be honest, I'd say that ukulele was a, a big success in that joining together that then and now feel, you know, kind of getting that 90s platformer feel, but bringing it up to date enough that it didn't feel wrong. Mm. Yeah, I, hope, I mean, I hope so. 
it was it's it's it is again so weird to, to to talk about the game the design of the game now that we're a good month or so into release and we're getting so much feedback um I don't think, even now, even knowing all the feedback we got back, I don't think I would have done anything differently in terms of the sound. I just wonder, knowing the design changes, I think, that we would make to the game, if we could do it all over again, that's always going to be the case, yeah. how my sound would have changed with slightly updating some of the mechanics. Um, it's an interesting thought, anyway, one, and one that we'll probably have to consider in the future. Well, will you be updating it at all? I mean, obviously, a lot of games these days get updates or DLC. Is that the case with ukulele? Yeah, yeah. So the the big thing that we're doing at the moment, in fact, right now, the things that are placed on it here we're concentrating on are this big patch we're doing, which basically is designed to um, address an awful lot of the feedback we got from the community. And then once we know that that's all solid, uh, we're currently working on the Switch port, we're going to bring all of those changes into those Switch ports uh, so that when that comes out on Nintendo consoles, um, it's we've responded in pretty much every way we can to all the requests that the community has given back on things that they they wanted wanted from the game, uh, making good on those. So we did do a little bit of work in the audio in this patch. In all honesty, it's had it's had a good proper mix now, as unfortunately is is often the case these days. You often see in the patch notes, usually day one, but the mix mix notes. I don't know if you started noticing that and. In the last couple of years oh yeah there's, there's loads, a... of, loads of the mixing yeah. yeah seems to turn up day one not on disc um again unfortunately uh the schedule we were on all this lovely three four week period i put aside thinking i would need two weeks disappeared very very quickly <laughs> as, <laughs> as often is the case yeah um but what the one thing that was really really nice is now that we've hired matt griffin who is now our second sound designer and we're now a two-man sound team in-house which is going to be wonderful excellent uh the two of us sat down and we mixed the whole game through which was actually surprisingly good nick because i had been mixing on the fly for the previous couple of months um up till launch up till cert it was pretty good nick and i had managed to every time i did a bug in a new area would then mix that area while i was at it but the whole game had another pass so that's a nice thing that's happened also we've looked at some of the maybe little little things here and there and updated those in, in, in sound as well and, and gone across any features that we thought could could need a little bit here and there. But not wholesale changes, just uh, just some polish work, as it were. Yeah, excellent. Well, look forward to the patch update then and see what, what happens in the audio. Cool. So, obviously, games industry as it is, NDAs and all that. Mm-hmm. Can you discuss with us at all what's happening next over your end at Playtonic? Um, not in many details but i can say that it's really nice having two people here and it's really nice being slightly more involved in the music for the future i think one of the things that's gonna it's gonna happen perhaps is uh matt and i doing more support for the external composers so i actually wrote a bit of music for ukulele and i've got the odd little track here and there Oh, in, cool. a, in that game but obviously Matt being an experienced composer and I having done lots of composition in in the past as well I think what's going to be nice is us being able to support the composers we work with uh, in, in the future is, is as well a little bit more directly and also now that we've got more hands on board that we can start investigating adaptive and um, interactive music a little bit more as well oh, that's cool. certainly something that Sam 
sorry, that, uh, Matt, Matt did, <laughs> sorry, as your name's right in front of me. And I did, yeah, I just reading it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Matt has done quite a bit of in the past on Unbox. It's something I was messing around with quite a bit in my indie days as well. Um, and I think we're kind of like looking to going forward, really get on top of trying to make the scores in our future games react a little bit more to what the player is doing uh, and what the environment may be doing and really and really chasing that aspect because music music is such an important thing for rare games of the past and oh, yeah, we've got definitely. we've got the, the the um the talent available to us and we've got such a great relationship with with grant and dave and, and steve and and we've got two in-house uh people who are very proficient in, in the way that they can handle and, and are used to uh working working with music implementation that i think that that's certainly an avenue that we're going to be chasing in projects to come. Awesome stuff. So I just have a, a fun question to finish off with now. So if you could hang out with anyone in the world, alive or dead, who would it be? Ooh, this is a really, really weird answer. Robin Beanland. Oh, wow. The one composer from Rare who I don't really work with, who wrote the great Mighty Pooh song. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's so annoying. Like, I love that song. I love that so much. And the guy who, the one rare composer I don't work with, who wrote that song that was like, when I was 12 years old, I had on repeat and thought it was the funniest thing ever. <laughs> is the one guy I don't work with. Um, so actually, to be fair, I have met him, so that's not entirely fair. But no, I want to, I want to sit him down and hang with him and ask and grill him about how he came to write the great Mighty Poo song and <laughs> maybe ask if we could do a duet rendition of it. Oh, that'd be amazing. If you do, yeah. you have to record it. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, fantastic. What an answer. <laughs> well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you, Dan. I hope you've enjoyed your time with us on the show. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. It's, it's been really nice to... to to talk about the sound to, to an audience who will listen. Yeah, definitely. It's been great to have you and have a really good chat about the, the sound of ukulele. So we, we look forward to what you're doing next and we, we hope to have you back on here sometime soon. Cool. Thank you very much. Um, and best wishes to you. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Sound Architect podcast, sponsored by Krotos Limited, creators of Simple Monsters and Dehumanizer. Don't forget, you can also catch all of our great reviews and other articles at our website at www.thesoundarchitect.co.uk. If you would like to support The Sound Architect, please check out our sponsorship link as well as our Patreon.